Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving and stuffed their faces with a lot of food. Wanted to still bring up this story that we did earlier in the week. We spoke to Lucas Quan Peterson. He's the food columnist at the LA Times. And we talked about the official Thanksgiving food power rankings. Lucas went through all of your favorite Thanksgiving foods and ranked them. Just a little preview of what's to come. Turkey ranks dead last in this list. Pumpkin pie doesn't fare much better. And cranberries might just be the most controversial food item. So here's Lucas with a little bit more on where all the Thanksgiving foods rank. Everyone has opinions on what Thanksgiving foods are great. We're all packed around a tiny table crammed with different dishes that different people have made. And we're having to field passive aggressive comments from our aunts and uncles and cousins. And (laughs) what better way to talk about what foods suck and the number one food that really sucks is turkey. I'm sorry to say it. People don't know how to cook it. They put the whole bird in the oven so the white meat and the dark meat don't get cooked evenly. The white meat usually ends up bone dry like you've just got cotton balls in your mouth. And let's face it, when you're making your Thanksgiving plate, how much turkey do you actually put on there? No, where it's at is the sides. So turkey is at the bottom of my list. Yeah, I have to really agree with you. And your article, one very effective question How often do you see it on menus and sit-down restaurants relative to other proteins? And it's not very often. So I have to agree with you there. I do get some. It's almost a courtesy that you get the turkey and you put some on your plate, maybe put some gravy on it to help. But you're right. Turkey ends up being one of those things. It's just really tough to handle. It's such a big bird a lot of times when you try to feed a big family. And you're right. The uneven cooking really brings it down. Number 19 on your list, very low on the list, is pumpkin pie. I think you're either team pumpkin pie or not. Yeah. I It's never really appealed to me. You kind of eat it once a year. It feels like an obligation rather than something you actually enjoy eating. And frankly, the texture of it, as I said, and the appearance of it, it kind of looks like dog poop. Sorry to say it, but it kind of <laughs> does. And it's really not appetizing. Number 17, cranberries, because cranberries shows up twice on the list. Number 17 and then way up at the top, number five, canned. So let's talk about cranberries fresh and canned. I really would like us to show some love for the canned cranberries. I think they're delicious. You get that kind of satisfying plop on the plate as you're opening up that ocean spray can, kind of makes that satisfying moist wet sound just like a can of dog food, like you're putting it in the dish. And then it's got the dimples around the edge. And I just like that. I just like the tanginess and like the denseness of it. It kind of reminds me of like eating a fruit roll up or like a fruit snack. I know that one uh, definitely could cause some problems in the family. My family usually does a little bit of both. So we'll do the can and they'll do some fresh for those that want it. I think if you can prepare the fresh cranberries well, then those can be good. But I think, again, most people just don't know really how to cook those properly. And why not just go with what you know is going to be good? And that's the canned cranberries. 
Number 16 on the list is sweet potato casserole. I know a lot of people love this. This is kind of one of those other ones where you either really love it or you really hate it. A lot of times it comes with marshmallows on top. I prefer the way my grandma makes it. She makes it with like piloncillo, which is just like this nice little soupy kind of caramelly broth that she cooks the sweet potatoes in. And it's tasty just as is. No marshmallows. Sweet potatoes, again, it's you like it or you don't. Like sweet potato fries, I don't like. It's just something about the, I don't know, the sweetness or the flavor or the texture. I would much rather be eating mashed potatoes. It's nice when you have the torched marshmallow on top or the piloncillo, as you were saying. But yeah, it's just kind of not my thing. 13, we have pecan pie. Number 12, Brussels sprouts. Now, I love Brussels sprouts. Got to have a little bit of bacon on them, but I like the line that you wrote here. Be careful not to overcook them because they'll smell like farts, and I have to agree with that one. We all hated Brussels sprouts growing up as a kid, but now they've become a super trendy thing to have on restaurants, and they're really delicious if they're cooked properly, so that's the trick. You just got to cook them right. All right, let's get into the top part of the list. Number 10 is roll or biscuits. And I got to say this, one of my favorite parts, for me, it's got to be King's Hawaiian rolls with a little bit of butter on them. Some people will sort of ride or die with biscuits, which I totally understand and respect. But what's good about rolls is that it's great for then making a sandwich with the leftovers the next day. But biscuits are good too, but you really have to know how to make them. You can't use bread flour. You can't use like a hard wheat flour. You have to use like a soft wheat. Most people don't know that. and They end up making hockey puck biscuits. So rolls are definitely the safer choice. That's why we cut to the chase, like I said, and just use those King's Hawaiians. Okay, number nine on this list green bean casserole. I'd rather just have some green beans with a little bit of salt and pepper on them, nothing else. But I know this is a staple of a lot of families. I think if you grew up eating it, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up outside of the city of Chicago. And so, you know, Midwesterners have a thing about casseroles. We have a thing about canned soup going into a casserole dish and making a hot dish, making tuna noodle casserole, green bean casserole. Green bean casserole, interestingly, was invented by the Campbell Soup Company. And so you get that cream of mushroom soup. I mean, yeah, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty sickening, frankly, if you're not really used to eating it. But again, it's just nostalgia and you get the crunchy fried onions on top. So for me, it's a must have. Number six on this list is ham. Now that one is kind of in direct contrast to the turkey. A lot of people do love it though. Who doesn't like a nice ham? I'd like to see more ham. I think some people sort of had an issue with me putting it as a Thanksgiving food and not as a Christmas food, though I tend to think of it as just a holiday thing that people eat on Christmas or Thanksgiving. You get a nice maple glazed ham, honey glazed ham. It's hard to say that ham is underrated, but I think as a holiday dish, I'd much rather see a ham on the table than turkey because I think it's a little bit easier to cook and it's probably going to taste a little bit better. Okay. Number five on this list is cranberries. We already talked about that. Number four, cornbread. What are your thoughts on cornbread? Cornbread is one of the few perfect things in life. I mean, like anything, you have to make it well, but it's just a fantastic side dish. It goes with anything. It's a little nutty. It's got great texture. It's a little bit sweet. Put a little bit of whipped honey butter on it. It's really a fantastic thing just to have on the Thanksgiving table. Number three is broccoli gratin. Now, this is one that I, in my own personal experience, have not really eaten too much. I've had it in different forms throughout my life, obviously, but not for Thanksgiving usually. A lot of people hate it. It's another casserole. So it's like broccoli and cheddar cheese and breadcrumbs. 
So again, the Midwesterner in me just has a very soft spot in my heart for the broccoli gratin casserole. Some people don't like it, but they're wrong. Broccoli gratin is delicious and should be served at every Thanksgiving. All right, we're getting to the top two here. Number two is mashed potatoes and gravy. I love them. I always go back for seconds on this one. It's pretty hard to mess up, really, uh, mashed potatoes. Could you imagine going to Thanksgiving dinner and there's no mashed potatoes and gravy? You would turn around and you would walk out the door. Everyone loves potatoes. People have different techniques. You can do skin on. You can do no skin. I prefer no skin. But I think there's never really a problem with mashed potatoes. And then the great thing about the gravy, no matter how you make the gravy, if you like to do it with the giblets, no matter how you like to make it, you pour that gravy over your entire plate. It just kind of lubricates the whole meal. And who doesn't like mashed potatoes? All right. And the number one Thanksgiving food, and I will gladly agree to this one, it's stuffing. It's so good. It's got tons of flavor in it. It's bread. It is one of the top Thanksgiving foods for sure. Absolutely. Who doesn't like delicious seasoned stale bread? Who doesn't like that baked in the oven? You get those nice crispy edges. Tastes like onions and parsley and sage. It's delicious. You can make stuffing a million different ways. You can make it with cornbread. You can make it with regular bread. You can make it with pretzels. You can make it with crumbled up bits of old bagels. There's any number of ways under the sun to make stuffing. I really do like the recipe in the old Vincent Price cookbook. Vincent Price, who did horror movies and did the scary voiceover for the thriller video. But I just love stuffing. It's really fantastic. Are are you a stuffing inside the bird or outside the bird? I'm definitely inside the bird. Yes, thank you. And it's frankly the one good thing about turkey is to impart flavor into the stuffing. It's really sort of its its only use. But yeah, you got to have stuffing. Lucas Quan peterson food columnist at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Another interesting story we covered this week. Every minute, there's about 3.8 million queries typed into Google. And while the company says that it doesn't use any human curation to arrange those results, Google has interfered with search results to a far greater degree with algorithm tweaks, blacklists, and thousands of low-paid contractors that assess the quality of search results. There's a lot more factors that go into what information gets displayed when you use Google than you might think. For more on this story, we spoke to Kristen Grind. She's a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. We spent really many months looking into this to figure out exactly how it works, and it was very challenging reporting. So we wanted to understand more about the human decisions behind the scenes that are going on because Google sort of likes to present this viewpoint that it's just a bunch of computer code delivering results. So we looked at specifically how they're making changes to the algorithms and what tools they use. And really, we found that they make a lot more changes than we expected, but also that they're doing that under immense pressure from governments around the world and and from big advertisers and other big businesses and also from interest groups. There were some incredible numbers that come with this. Google made more than 3,200 changes to its algorithms in 2018. That was up from more than 2,400 in 2017 and about 500 in 2010. Obviously, that's a long time ago and things have gotten more complicated since then. But increasingly, it seems like they're tweaking things to modify what the search results are going to show. Give us some of the top takeaways. One of the main ones is that Google makes a lot of algorithmic changes to search results to favor big businesses over smaller ones. 
So that is definitely a big one. We found that they have made certain changes to the site that will favor big businesses like Amazon or Facebook, in part by updating them more frequently, but also behind the algorithms, they're making signal changes that make that happen. And a lot of the big issue there is that a lot of smaller websites and businesses aren't, of course, aware that they're doing it. No one does. So that puts them on a much uneven playing field there. So that was one of the big things that we found. Could it be in that situation that consumers are actually looking for something from these bigger, well-known names or a bigger website is something like on Amazon where they're more likely to find what they're looking for? Does that figure into it? Through the course of this investigation, one thing that became really clear to us is that most of the time, Google appears to really be trying to deliver the most relevant results. So they are making these decisions based on that for the most part, right? But the problem is they're not really disclosing these decisions and explaining why they're making them or how they're making them. So even if it is a good decision to benefit the user, it's not being explained well at all. So that angers one constituent that doesn't understand what's going on. Google engineers are regularly making behind-the-scenes adjustments for other information that's on the layered on top of the basic search results. So the page is not just search results. They have these other things called knowledge panels, which give you a little more information on whatever a specific search might be. And they have like featured news also. How does that work? So that is really the sleight of hand that Google is doing here. So if you were to sort of look at the Google results page now compared with, say, 10 or 15 years ago, it looks completely different because Google has now layered on top of it all these different features, which it considers separate product lines. And what's going on there is they are saying, listen, we will not touch these blue links that we deliver you in organic search results, but those links have now shrunk to just a small amount of the page. So what's going on there is they're able to change all these other features, even though they're not really touching what they originally said they wouldn't. So they have a lot more control than they did, say, a decade ago. Something that a lot of people were concerned with, Google was accused of this, Facebook, other big tech giants were accused of this, conservative bias or bias against lesser known voices, I guess, in political discourse and other areas as well. So Google has a couple of things that they do use. They have this autocomplete feature. So, you know, if you type in Donald Trump is, it'll give you suggestions to complete that. That was something that came up in your investigation. And also some of these blacklists to certain sites to remove or prevent others from surfacing certain types of results. So I know they were facing a lot of criticism regarding to this. What did you guys find out related to that? So we, of course, kept that right in our heads as we were going along this reporting. We tested a lot of terms, both in organic search and in autocomplete, and also interviewed more than 100 people. We did not find any outright evidence that they are biasing against conservatives. However, what we did find is back to this transparency issue, which is that when they are blacklisting certain terms from search, meaning that they won't show up, or from autocomplete, they're not explaining it well or even admitting that they're doing it. And so that has helped lead political groups of all kinds to think that they are being censored. It's the sort of lack of explanation that is the problem more than anything else. And then another big thing that we've kind of come to realize what's going on, uh, Facebook was a big example when headlines started coming about how they use contractors to either filter out bad content, things like that. Google does the same. They use a bunch of low-paid contractors to assess the quality of the algorithm. So they'll give them a bunch of sample 
searches, and then it's up to those contractors to decide, using their best judgment, really, whether the search results were accurate or gave them the searches that they did want. These contractors, it took me a really long time to wrap my head around because on the one hand, Google was saying these 10,000 outside contractors, so they're just like normal people on their houses, they're judging these search results. So in effect, they're the only quote unquote unbiased third parties reviewing these algorithm changes and how results display. But on the other hand, Google has all these guidelines that it's giving them on how they should rate results and also kind of gives them real life updates on how they should rate them. So it just makes it very confusing as to how unbiased they really are in the process. And Google doesn't have any other outside parties looking at search results. So many things have changed now. Obviously, when Google started off, they were just kind of this simple website search engine designed to index what's on the internet. But now they're an advertising juggernaut. Their advertising revenue was $116.3 billion last year. That is a ton of money. So a lot of people will have to think that this has to influence what a lot of these search results are. Uh, The other thing is, obviously, since 2016, when the elections happened, a lot of people were accusing various parties of posting misinformation online. Google's also getting a ton of requests from governments, businesses, other people to modify results just to give them a shot, I guess, if you will. On the advertising piece, of course, you can pay, they call it paid search. When you're buying an ad on search, that's the first thing that's going to show up in results. But one of the things that we found that was just incredible to us is, you know, they make a big deal about how even if you're a paid advertiser, that won't affect your organic search results, right? They're different sides of the business. But we actually found that some big businesses do get help that other websites don't. So it's not quite as even as they claim it is. What is the top takeaway from all of this? It does seem like Google could do a better job of disclosing how the search results are managed. But even in some of uh, what you guys found, you, you really didn't see any political bias one way or the other within search results. So what's the takeaway from this website that I mean, I just feel everybody in the U.S. uses kind of all over the place. There's other places like Bing and DuckDuckGo, but Google is the king on this thing. The big takeaway is really that this is not just some autonomous objective code that is delivering results when you type in a query and that behind the scenes every single day, Google executives and engineers are wrestling with all this pressure that they are under and sometimes making decisions because of that pressure. So I can tell you, I mean, I can't use Google the same way I used to after all this reporting. <laughs> in, in, in what way? Help us help us understand it in that way. You know the inner workings now. So what is it that has changed in your mind? I truly believed, I mean, of course, I know that people write algorithms, but I didn't really understand how much goes into deciding what the algorithm shows or even that the people writing it could be under any kind of pressure, right? I sort of just really believed it was computer driven. So now when I get a certain type of result, I sort of find myself thinking, oh my gosh, did some interest group complain against this? Is this why (laughs) I'm not getting this over something else? You know? (laughs) Yeah. And And then it's off to the keyword race, you know, let me put in a couple of different keywords and see if my search exactly. changes. Or yeah. 
Exactly. Or even an autocomplete now, you know, before when something didn't show up, I just didn't really think anything of it. And now I understand they have blacklists. They're actually trying to keep that stuff out of there. And I just knew none of that. I think most people don't. Kirsten Grind, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 